0: This morning's reading is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and can be found on page 3 of your Bibles. Don't blink. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right, today we're going to begin a series looking at the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. Now very often we avoid any serious studies of these chapters because we're embarrassed by them. We're not quite sure how to handle them. But there are two very good reasons, at least, why we should face up to them. The first is that they are among the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Martin Luther, the Reformer, described them as certainly the foundation of the whole of Scripture. And in living memory, the late Francis Schaeffer wrote In some ways, these chapters are the most important ones in the Bible. It is after all from these chapters that we learn about the sovereignty of God, the dignity of man, the sanctity of human life, the basis for human rights. These chapters give us an understanding of our sexuality, of male and female relationships and of marriage. They give us our understanding of both work and rest. They give us an understanding of our uh, purpose in life, which is summed up basically to manage the world on God's behalf and to multiply so that he can have more people created who can have the opportunity of a relationship with him. They also explained why we are this curious mixture of good and bad at the same time and why we find it so difficult at times to do the good we know we should do. And most glorious of all, they give us the first promise of a divine rescuer, a saviour who is yet to come. So they are very important chapters for knowing God's mind on some very contemporary practical issues. Well, if the first reason is education... The second is evangelism. Many times I've found these chapters and the whole science and religion or science and scripture, creation and evolution, prose and poetry, myth and history debates to be the ones that hold people back from coming to faith in a God who is so otherwise um, obvious and real. And furthermore, if they have Become Christians, they feel forced to leave their brains behind. They just don't know how to take these chapters on board in their thinking. I have one friend who, for seven years, moved very slowly towards trusting Christ very gradually, indeed. And then, over lunch one Sunday, he asked me about this whole Genesis question of science and scripture. And I explained as best I could what seemed to me to be true to the Bible and true to the best of scientific knowledge that I was aware of. And within two days, he came through to faith. You see, he had had a genuine intellectual difficulty which had stopped him coming through to faith in Jesus Christ. So we have a duty to explain the Bible as accurately and as best as we can. And these chapters help us. First, to understand God's world and how we are to be living in it, and secondly, to engage the world. So often the world thinks that we have nothing to say on the great issues of the day. But the truth is we have, and that it all makes very good sense. So I want this morning to make three preliminary points about uh, the Genesis account and then make three main points about these verses in particular and the whole chapter in general as preparation for looking at most of the chapter next week and in particular how this biblical account and the theory of evolution might be understood. You'll find, by the way, an outline of what I'm speaking about on the uh, service sheet this morning. Now I think we need first to say something about the origin of the book of Genesis, that its origin is both human and divine. Although Moses wrote it, and although no doubt for the previous, um, well, no doubt that uh, material was passed on to him from his predecessors, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph who Abraham lived 700 years before Moses. But doubtless that was passed on down to him. But at the end of the day, we share our Lord Jesus' view that God himself is the ultimate author of these accounts. He has revealed his mind on these matters through men to us. And the second thing that needs saying is in regard to the treatments that Genesis gives to things that they are selective and not exhaustive. There are many questions we would like to uh, have covered. There are many questions we would like answers to. But in his wisdom, he has decided not to tell us. Some, of course, we can and have, found out ourselves by investigating this great creation. Others are beyond our comprehension and we will never know this side of heaven. Either way, God does not consider them vital for us to know. The Genesis accounts concentrate on the most important things, which are relationships. And finally, in this preliminary section of the character of the account, that the character of the account is religious and not scientific. Not that there is necessarily any conflict between science and religion, between science and scripture. After all, if God is God, he is the God of creation, which science studies, and the God of revelation, which Christians study. If you are a Christian and a scientist, then you study both. And since the origin of both the universe and the Bible are one and the same, we should not expect there to be any conflict or contradiction between them. Sir John Houghton um, was a professor of atmospheric physics at Oxford University. He then became the head of the meteorological office and subsequently he was the chair for about 14 years of the Nobel Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And he is one of those Christians who is quite obviously from his pedigree, a rather foremost scientist. He is one of those who takes the view I've just mentioned. He has written, I agree with some of the great scientists in the early days of the scientific revolution 300 years ago who spoke of two books of God's revelation, the book of nature, from which we learn about God's creative activity in the universe, and the book of God's word, the Bible, from which we particularly learn of God's revelation of himself in Jesus. The view from the two books complement and support each other. He actually is, like many scientists, quite a humble guy. You wouldn't notice him in a crowd, but he goes to a church just like ours in Wales. And his thought is widely endorsed by many others. Science discovers truth by investigation. Scripture reveals truth which would otherwise, uh, which would not otherwise be discovered by investigation. So we have two books to read. One, the book of God's works, and the other, the book of God's words. Science and scripture should be seen as complementary. As Galileo said, the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. So, why has there been such a history of conflict? Now, of course, Christianity arose from Judaism. A 12th century Jewish philosopher, Maimonides, was the great exemplar of the belief that science and religion were complementary. He wrote that the conflict between science and the Bible arose either from the lack of scientific knowledge or a defective understanding of the Bible. So it's been caused either by scientists claiming too much certainty for some theory, when the history of science reveals that theories undergo a change. What was accepted scientific fact in one generation is discarded as false by the next generation. So sometimes scientists may be wrong in claiming too much. For example, it was once in fashion that the universe had always existed in some form. But the evidence for the Big Bang, a beginning for the universe, proved overwhelming and the previous theory was discarded. But sometimes it is we Christians who have gone too far when, for example, we claim more than Scripture does. An example of this is the way in which the church treated Galileo. Now we know that in the Psalms it says, just as we say in everyday conversation, that the sun rises and the sun sets. That is the language of observation. That is what we observe to be happening, even though we are told that it is we on earth that are moving and not the sun. A scientific explanation would say that the earth is rotating on its axis every 24 hours as it orbits the sun every 365 and a quarter days. And it seems to me that so long as we recognize where the Bible is using the language of observation and not the language of science, just as we do in our everyday conversations, then there is no problem. But the church didn't in the case of Galileo. It insisted that the language of observation was scientific language, that the, the, uh, that the sun did rise and did set. It moved earth didn't and so it condemned Galileo as a heretic and imprisoned and tortured him and yet he was right and the church was wrong in its misunderstanding of the Bible so we mustn't expect the Genesis account to use scientific language they lived in pre-scientific times but neither should we expect that properly understood they would conflict with the more certain scientific discoveries. So over the weeks ahead, as we study these chapters, we should remember their divine origin and study the text with reverence. We should not expect contradictions between science and scripture, both properly understood. And since they are dealing with immensely practical issues, often moral issues, we should be prepared to obey what we find we are commanded to. Well, else, let's next turn to the three main points that there are to be said about these two verses in this first chapter. The three are these. In the beginning, God. In the end, man. And in between, stages. So, in the beginning, God. And we're mostly function on, uh, focus on that today. The whole emphasis of this first chapter is that the initiative lies with God. He created the universe. 34 times in this one chapter, God is mentioned. He speaks and things happen. And this universe that God has created is enormous. John Lennox, in his book Seven Days That Divide the World, quotes Bill Bryson, who has an inimitable style, And he is here giving a popular scientific account of the beginning. I quote from Bill Bryson. And so, from nothing, our universe began. In a single blinding pulse, a moment of glory much too swift and expansive for any form of words, the singularity assumes heavenly dimensions, space beyond conception. The first lively second, a second that many cosmologists will devote lifetimes to shaving into even finer wafers, produces gravity and the other forces that govern physics. In less than a minute, the universe is a million billion miles across and growing fast. There is a lot of heat now, 10 billion degrees of it, enough to begin the nuclear reactions that create the lighter elements, principally hydrogen and helium, with a dash, about one in a hundred million of lithium. In three minutes, 98% of all matter there is or will ever be has been produced. We have a universe. It is a place of the most wondrous and gratifying possibility and beautiful too. And it was all done in about the time it takes to make a sandwich. And the Bible says that God created it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever wondered what the alternatives to that are? It's always good to be... uh, Aware of what other options are, because it then forces greater clarity in our own thinking. Well, let me tell you a story that illustrates the options. I first came across it in David Pawson's book, Truth to Tell, which was long before I ever met him here in person. There were four men walking across the Sahara Desert. And there in the distance, they saw a beautiful palace. Each one of them then offered an explanation as to how it came to be there. The first person said, in fact, it wasn't there at all. It was simply a mirage. The second one said, it has always been there. It is old as the earth itself. The third said, well, it put itself there by a remarkable process of chance. Somehow or other... Although there was once nothing, nothing has become something, and the wind and the rain blew and rearranged all the grains of sand to form the palace. And the fourth said, Well, actually, I know the architect who built it. Now, which do you think is the most plausible? Do you think the whole thing is a great figment of your imagination?' That it's a mirage, an illusion. Do you think it's always been here? Well, just about any astronomer or physicist around the world would tell you that it hasn't. That since the universe is expanding, it must have had a beginning, what they call the Big Bang. Of course, the disappointment for science is that since the Big Bang would have destroyed all the evidence, science can never discover the ultimate cause of the universe. Robert Jastrow was once the former head of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies and an agnostic, and he wrote very honestly in Christianity Today, probably 40 years ago, he wrote this. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulled himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Or do you think that nothing became something? Well, do you know of any cases where nothing becomes something? So folk who take this line have to say, well, there was a little bit of something to start with. One's even called that initial amount of energy the great cosmic egg, to which one is tempted to say, Well, who laid it? Actually, even allowing for the uncreative little bit to start with, it would seem that the chances of the necessary proteins needed for life arising by chance, which have been estimated by many, but one in particular, Professor Fred Hoyle, who was a well known agnostic as being about 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. A colleague of his, an astrophysicist, put it much more intelligibly when he said, the idea that the universe was put together by random shuffling of constituent molecules can be shown to be as ridiculous and improbable as the proposition that a tornado blowing through a scrapyard may assemble a Boeing 747, our note is not saying that an incredibly intelligent and all-powerful mind could not have achieved that by taking all the constituent parts and putting them all together, but that such a shuffling could not be achieved by chance, could not be achieved randomly. G.K. Chesterton had it right when he said, when people cease to believe in the God of the Bible, they will believe anything and everything. So that leaves us with one possibility, that God created this all out of nothing. And doesn't that make very good sense? The world is not a mirage in my head. It has not always been here. Nothing did not become something, nor did a little bit of something, by a freak succession of accidents, become the universe. God created it. Remember, these are the only possibilities. How weak and feeble They seem in comparison to the truth. Though, as we will see next week, that does not rule out the Lord using the process of evolution to achieve much of his creative work. We must distinguish between the creator and his creative methods. John Lennox, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford, pointed out in his debates with Richard Dawkins. He criticised Dawkins for, and I quote him, his simplistic insistence on our choosing either science or God. He argued these are false alternatives on the same foolish level as insisting that we choose between Henry Ford and the car production line to explain the origin of the Ford Galaxy. The fact is that both these explanations are necessary, They do not contradict but complement each other. Henry Ford is the agent who designed the car. The car production line is the mechanism by which it is manufactured. Similarly, he says we do not have to choose between God and the Big Bang. They are different kinds of explanation. One in terms of God's creatorial agency and the other in terms of mechanisms and laws. So, in the beginning, God, and in the end, man, verse 27. Human beings are the climax of God's creation, the crowning glory of his creativity, absolutely unique, created to manage God's world and to make the very best use of it, created to multiply, and to be partners in creating further human beings with the potential to live forever in love with God. Us, as he's referred to throughout this chapter, referring to uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And perfectly equipped are we, morally and spiritually, to be capable of such a relationship. So in the beginning, God... In the end, man, and in between, stages. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering over the water. So it would appear that God created matter, the raw materials, but all was formless and empty, with the Spirit of God getting ready to fashion creation which we'll look at in detail next week, but rather like the artist starts with his paints and produces a picture, or a sculptor starts with her marble block and chips away until the statue is formed. So what does all this mean? What does this say about what our attitude to God should be? I think it says one word, worship. And worship in the Bible is synonymous with service. So it means our whole lives should be dedicated to the worship and service of God. Now isn't that a reasonable response? Don't we have good reason to worship him, to orientate our lives around him, to focus on him? To follow in His ways for us. He is greater than us, He knows more than us, and yet He communicates with us in words we can understand. As far as we know, not to rule out the possibility, but as far as we know, there are no other beings in the universe who have the capacity to have a relationship with the Creator, when we look out at how vast the universe is, and we can only see a tiny fraction of what there is. The odd thing is that it is not aware of us, but we are aware of it. And is not that a humble response? God is in charge. He keeps everything going. He keeps us alive. If he were simply to allow the earth to drift a few miles nearer the sun, we'd all fry. If he were to let it drift a few miles further away from the sun, we would all freeze. We are ultimately dependent on him for our existence. Our lives are in his hands. And isn't that the responsible thing to do? The other contrast between us, human beings, and the rest of all God's creation is that the rest of creation can only reflect the glory of God. You know, the beauty of, say, the Alps or the corals in the sea, they automatically just reflect his creative beauty. They don't have any choice in the matter. We, though, have a choice and with it a responsibility. We can worship God or we can worship something else. It is both reasonable and appropriate that we should choose to worship and serve the living God. Creator of the universe. Amen.